welcome to Legal Light, where we discuss everything e-discovery. Legal Light is brought to you by Outlaw e-discovery, the UK's leading independent e-discovery service provider, and your host Matt Altes, CEO and founder of Outlaw e-discovery. Today, I'm joined by e-discovery royalty. He's a long-term proponent and evangelist for e-discovery and legal technologies. He's also a former United States Magistrate Judge and former head judge of the Southern District of New York. He is Judge Andrew Peck. So welcome Judge Peck. Thank you very much. Thank you Glad so much for, for giving us some of your time. I know you're so busy over here. Yeah, just four panels over the three days. Four panels. So how many so far? Did one today, have two tomorrow, and then the judge's keynote first thing Thursday morning. And they told me you're retired. Well, that's a slight exaggeration. Uh, I was a magistrate judge in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York for 23 years, and a little under two years ago, I retired from the court and decided my mind would turn to mush if I were just sitting home and reading, playing, going to baseball games, whatever. Um, so I'm now working at DLA Piper as senior counsel and really sort of the judge in residence for them. Uh, so I'm doing a combination of hands-on litigation, substantive uh, work on uh, copyright and trademark, um, and then also doing mediation, arbitration, and special master work, as well as just generally consulting with the firm's lawyers and clients on, you know, Judge, if we made this argument in front of you when you were still on the bench, how would you react to it? And other things where I can bring both a judicial perspective and 40 some odd years um, as a lawyer and judge to the to the matter. Well I must admit I'm feeling a little bit starstruck myself because as far as as far back as I can remember your name has been synonymous with e-discovery and legal technology particularly in the early days of predictive coding and TAR t technology assisted review. Um, when did you first become acquainted with the technology and what led you so emphatically to lend your name and, and, and potentially your reputation, let's be honest, to that technology? All right, well, I, I mean, we actually, I actually go back, my first decision in e-discovery related world was back in 1995, my first year on the bench in an otherwise totally unforgettable uh, sorry, forgettable case, uh, anti-monopoly against Hasbro and Toys R Us. And the issue there was this game that nobody except its inventor seemed to be interested in, uh, and whether it was getting enough shelf space in Toys R Us and other merchants. And the lawyer for anti-monopoly asked for information about sales of Monopoly and other games to show that Anti-Monopoly was not getting a fair share of space in the stores or whatever. And first the information was produced on paper, just reams and reams of information. And then the plaintiff's lawyer got smarter and said, can't you do a computer printout? 
giving me this information. And I had this quote in the opinion that my friend and colleague Judge Schindlin liked to use for a number of years in law review articles where I said, by now it is black letter law that computerized information, if relevant, is discoverable. Other than that quote, the opinion has no relevance to anything and is eminently forgettable. Fast forward to the 2006 rules amendments uh, to the federal rules of civil procedure here in the United States. And I had been a sort of judge in residence at the American Bar Association Employment Lawyers annual meeting, which was always at a nice beach resort in May, so it was a nice chance to escape New York cold weather. And around 2006, they asked if I would come back again. And I said, sure. And they said, you know, the last few years we've suggested a topic for you. We don't have anything in mind this year, could you suggest something? And I knew that the 2006 amendments were likely to pass uh, and would soon be effective, so I suggested maybe I could talk about that, and they said, that's a great idea. And I did, and then I think it was BNA Labor Law Reporter, now I think owned by Bloomberg, but at that point BNA, picked up one line you know, in the whole course of reporting on that, they said, and Peck spoke about the new 2006 rules. A few weeks later, maybe a month or two later, I get a call from somebody from the New York City Bar Association. Judge, we see you appear to be an expert on the new rules. Would you come do a panel for us on it? And I, of course, said yes, and then just kept getting more and more involved in e-discovery in the Sedona Conference, uh, which is the leading think tank on discovery matters. And then in 2010, 2011, I was asked to give a keynote at the Carmel Valley e-discovery retreat, a new e-discovery um, uh, conference event. And I said, what do you want me to talk about? And they suggested, why don't you talk about the various ways of searching for data now that there's so much data uh, based on electronically stored information. And I researched and um, then spoke about how we've gone from the old-fashioned search of paper <clears throat> to the ability to use computer-assisted review. Um, and several people in the audience who I respect very much and respected, including Chris Dale from your side of the pond, um, said, you really should write this up and get it published. Get some publicity for this better way of doing things. And I did write it up and it appeared in what was then Law Technology News, now Legal Tech News. That article appeared in, if I'm remembering my dates right, the October 2011 issue of Legal Technology News. A month later, the De Silva Moore against Publicis case was referred to me and they you know, sent me some preliminary material and then walked in to my courtroom and I actually turned and said to them, one of you at least must have thought you died and went to heaven. I've written an article about technology-assisted review. You're talking about using it in this case. 
And that led by February of 2012 to my decision in the Silver Moor, where I said uh, in the first case anywhere in the world as far as I know that the use of computer-assisted review, also known as predictive coding, now more known as technology-assisted review or TAR, can be appropriately used if the responding party wants to and that the courts would accept it. And that was a groundbreaking decision. And I've heard you speak a lot recently on the disclosure, inadvertent disclosure, of privileged data. And specifically um, when talking about the use of Rule 502. Explain to me why Rule 502 is so important when dealing with ESI. And why it is so ignored by so many lawyers, which I still don't understand. Federal Rule of Evidence 502 deals with the subject of inadvertent production of privileged information and whether or not it will be a waiver. The default provision under the rule, Federal Rule of Evidence 502B as in boy, says you would have to show that the disclosure was inadvertent, that you took careful steps to avoid having produced privileged material, and that as soon as you realized privileged material had been disclosed, you promptly notified the other side and called for it back. Now that's a certain amount of protection, but you gotta go through all those hoops where opposing counsel and potentially the judge will be looking at it with hindsight. Were you really careful enough, etc. 502D, as in district, is what I have called your get out of jail free card. It says that if the parties agree and the court orders, or even if the parties don't agree, but you get the court to enter the order, that it is not a waiver of the privilege in that litigation or in any other litigation with any other party in federal or state court. So it is a very broad protection. The reason it's so important, I mean, even in the old paper days, something could slip through, but with the amount of ESI that we are dealing with, where it could be millions or more than you know, millions of emails and other forms of electronically stored information, I don't care how careful your firm, your vendor, both are at doing the review, I can almost guarantee that in every case, something privileged is going to slip through. Whether you're using TAR, whether you're using manual, eyes on review by lawyers, contract attorneys, whoever. If nothing else, even if you know, you're very careful and if my firm were the outside counsel, you did a search for anything that has the at dlapiper.com extension, etc., fine. Nevertheless, if nothing else, an email from business person A to business person B that says, Andy says that we should do X and the reviewers just are not on top of their game and they don't realize that Andy might be Judge Andrew Peck, now counsel, to the client and that that is revealing privileged legal advice. 
if you have the 502D order, the other side is required to give that back once you call it to their attention. If you don't have it and you have to go through 502B, there will be arguments as to whether you were careful enough in your review, why the lawyers didn't spot it, and things like that. And there is nothing more embarrassing than to have to call your client and say, some privileged documents slipped through and now we've got to make a motion to the court in order to get it back. And there is no or virtually no downside to particularly if you are the producing party, often that means the defendant, to having a 502D non-waiver order. And when I was on the bench, I created a simple two-paragraph order that essentially in paragraph one said this is an agreement under Rule 502D and it is to extend as far as 502D allows. And then the second paragraph, which I did after um, a lawyer at a conference I was at, said, that's great, Judge, you understand all this, but what if I'm in front of some Neanderthal judge who doesn't really understand and says, okay, I gave you your one paragraph 502 non-waiver order, now press the Staples Easy button and don't take the time to review the documents and produce them all, and when you find ones that were privileged, you'll call them back as 502D allows. So the second paragraph says, nothing in this order is meant to prevent or hinder the party from doing a careful review for privilege, confidentiality, etc. Um, there are bells and whistles one can add to that, um, but that's the sort of simple two-paragraph order. I used to be able to say, and if you're interested, you can just go to the Southern District of New York website and under my rules, pick it up from there. I'm not on the court anymore, so my rules are no longer on the Southern District of New York website. Nevertheless, I've beat this dead horse, or not so dead horse, because lawyers still aren't using it enough that a simple Google search for Judge Peck and 502D will bring up various places where that order has been reproduced by parties. After De Silva Moore, I was not yet done with the uh, tar cases. I had two other cases where I opined um, about the use of technology-assisted review. In uh, Rio Tinto against Valley, I said that by then, and by then we had decisions out of England and Ireland, and I said by now it is black letter law that if the responding party wants to use technology-assisted review, in my opinion, courts would allow that to happen in anywhere in the English-speaking world, essentially. Uh, and then a year or so later, in the case against Hiles against the city of New York, the parties came to me and the plaintiff was trying to force the city to use TAR, and the city was reluctant to say the least and was saying, no, no, we want to continue to use keywords as we've started to do it in this case. We think that's the best way to get this done. And I'm like trying to put my thumb on the scale in the hearing, like 
you have read my opinions, right? You know I'm really in favor of the use of tar, and I think you know it's a very good system, as good as, if not better, than any other form of review. And the city said, we understand that, Judge, and we know how you feel. Nevertheless, we don't think it's appropriate in this case. And so I wound up writing the decision that said, as much as I would have liked them to use tar, it's my view that the uh, Sedona principles, of which Sedona principle six uh, is a key, and it says the responding party is in the best position to determine how it is going to review and produce responsive information. So based on that and finding nothing in the rules that would allow me to force a reluctant party to use TAR, in Hiles I said I would hope parties use it, but if the responding party doesn't want to, it doesn't have to. However, that might limit some of its options uh, to complain about the cost of review or some related things. Um, but in general, uh, I come out with those three cases saying if the responding party wants to use TAR, it should be allowed to do so. If the responding party does not want to use TAR, it is not up to the opposing party or the court to force them to use it. I imagine that um, it's an ever-increasing problem with the growing data sets that are out there, but particularly with um, the, 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 the growing use of messaging apps and the casual language that employs. Privileged data has got to be being um, uh, unwittingly disclosed in ever-increasing in numbers. Yeah, I mean, we've gone during my lifetime and the wit in the back who's saying, yeah, they started writing on rocks when you were first in practice. <laughs> it's an exaggeration. But we've gone from sort of formal-looking letters and business memos to email. And now email is sort of becoming passe, particularly with the younger generation of workers. And it's all text messages and things like that where you know, it's even more informal than um, emails were. And between abbreviations and uh, you know smiley faces and other emoticons, it is quite a challenge, both in terms of spotting privileged information, but also just in the review tools. I mean, TAR is a very word-based um, system. You need enough material for the TAR tool to work. I believe it can work on text with sufficient training, but it does make it a much bigger challenge. And then you're right, informality, you know, in somewhere else, uh, an email might have said, our lawyers said X, or lawyer Smith said X. Now, probably not. And then you've got all the abbreviations, some of which I've learned from my son, <laughs> others I've picked up in other ways, but uh, I'll tell this story. You can always cut it out. Um, I was emailing a judge of my vintage who was uh, out in the West Coast. We had been in uh, new judges school together. I was coming out there for a conference, and I wanted to get together with him and his wife for dinner. And so I sent him an email, and he emailed back. And at some point in the email, I said, it looks like Tuesday at 8 o'clock 
is, you know, works for both of us, uh, LMK, if that works. And I get an email back saying, what on earth is LMK? <laughs> and I email back and say, I can't believe you don't know that that means let me know. And his response was, so I didn't know that, BFD. <laughs> so we've gone from writing on cables to letters <laughs> to, Thanks, <man. laughs> to emails to messaging. What are your predictions? for the next decade in legal technology and e-discovery? Uh, you know, it is still the fact that the majority of cases today are still using keyword searching and are not using TAR. So my prediction for 10 years from now is everyone is finally going to be using TAR. And the reason for that is because there will be some better, newer AI-based technology that everybody will say, I don't want to be the first to use it. I'm not ready for that. Um, you know, less jokingly, I think we are going to see more and more use of AI in the practice of law, both in connection with discovery and connection with legal research in many ways, some of which I probably can't even imagine as we sit here now. The next part of the show is probably my favorite bit, where I ask you to tell our audience something that they otherwise wouldn't know about Judge Andrew Peck. So I ask, did you know that Judge Andrew Peck is also known as Inspector Baines of the Surrey Constabulary? And Surrey, England? Yes. And the reason is, I have been a Sherlock Holmes fanatic since I was in, pardon the pun, elementary school. And was indeed, uh, there, there is both the Sherlock Holmes Society in, of London, which I am also a member of, and the Baker Street Irregulars, which is the New York-based international Sherlock Holmes uh, group of aficionados. And you can't just say, you know, here's my 50 bucks, I want to be a member. You have to be invited to join the club based on service to the cause, meaning keeping Sherlock Holmes' reputation and memory alive. Uh, and when I was invested into the Baker Street Irregulars in 19, January 1973, uh, when you get invited into the Baker Street Irregulars, you are given a title. Nobody can be Sherlock Holmes or Dr. Watson. Originally, it was the 60-story titles. And when those got used up, even though there is some recycling of investitures when somebody passes away, um, the group has gone to character names. So at the age of 20, um, I was invested as Inspector Baines um, because it was one of the few police inspectors that Sherlock Holmes spoke well of and didn't think was a bumbling idiot. Um, and so the then head of the Baker Street Irregulars, knowing I was going to law school and inspectors in the constabulary were as close as he could come to thinking of the right uh, Way said in the hope that I will go far in my profession, like Holmes said Baines would in his. Uh, that's how I got that name. So that is 
a, you know, a few people or some people do know I'm a Sherlock Holmes collector and fanatic. Not many outside of the organization know my title. It's fantastic. Judge Beck, thank you so much for giving us your my time. My pleasure. Legal Light was brought to you by Altlaw eDiscovery, the UK's leading independent eDiscovery service provider. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to like, comment and share, and please leave us a review. For more information on our products and services, visit www.altlaw.co.uk. That's www.altlaw.co.uk.